We're going to look at John chapter 21 today, and we're going to begin reading at verse 15. This will be a passage that I think is probably pretty familiar to you because it's the story of Peter's restoration. So we're going to begin at verse 15. Hear God's word. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want until I return, what's that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. You alone can take words that were written thousands of years ago and bring them to life for us today. And so that is our prayer that you would bring these words of Scripture to life within us, that they may bear a harvest of righteousness, of truth, of love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. An elderly woman had just finished up her shopping. She'd collected up her bags, and she headed out to the parking lot, She got up to her car, and she noticed four young men sitting in her car. And so she dropped her bags, reached into her handbag, pulled out a handgun, and screamed at the top of her lungs, Get out of my car. I have this gun. I know how to use it, and I will use it. At which the four young men who were in the car spilled out the doors and ran for their lives. Well, they disappeared, and she put her bags in the car, then sat in at the the steering wheel and tried to get her key to go in the ignition and found out it wasn't her car. 
Well, she then drove immediately to the police and began to explain to the desk sergeant what had happened, and he just about fell off of his chair laughing, and as he did so, he pointed to the end of the counter at four very sheepish and pale-looking young men who had just declared that their car had been hijacked by a crazy old woman. Well, to her credit, she displayed repentance and confession. And as we think about the Apostle Peter in this context of John chapter 21, think about somebody who has gone through a very difficult season in his life. You could say it was a very dark night for Peter. And as we look at Peter now in John chapter 21, I think what we see is a Peter who is broken. Put yourself in his shoes for this moment. You're the one who said, Lord, if everybody else leaves you, I won't. And yet, who is the first to disappear? Who is the first to betray him? Matter of fact, who was the only one who would deny him? It was Peter. And I think at this stage in the, in the life of Peter, he's feeling the disillusionment of his own failure. He's feeling the disillusionment of having watched his leader crucified, not knowing what that means. And, and yet they've also had some resurrection appearances. There's been two resurrection appearances. Not that Peter's been party to one of them, but Jesus has shown up twice and, and, and indicated that he's very much alive. And he's told the disciples to go ahead of him into Galilee. And that's where they've gone. And I think as you look at Peter, you see this person who is this A-type personality who now is feeling very broken. And of course, in the midst of that, they're off in Galilee, and Peter being the person he is, probably isn't very comfortable sitting around doing nothing. And you hear Peter suggest to the other disciples, okay, enough of this. Let's go out and do what we know how to do. Let's go fish. So they go out fishing. And they fish all night. And it was probably safe for them to fish at night. That's normal practice in the Sea of Galilee at that time was to fish at night. But remember that these are still people who are nervous about what the religious authorities might do to them if they were found as part of the association with Jesus. And so nighttime was a safe time to fish. It also got them out doing something. They fish all night to catch nothing. And then in the morning, they see this guy standing on the shoreline, and he hollers out to, out to them, did you catch any fish? And they say, no, we didn't catch anything. And then he says, well, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And isn't that like Jesus? He lets us try things our way, and then when it doesn't work out, he says, why don't you try it my way? And so they cast their net on the other side, and lo and behold, they can't pull in the the, the nets because it's so full with the catch that they've made. And in the midst of hauling in this great load of fish, John looks over and he realizes that the person who's called out to them from the shore is Jesus. And he says, look, it's actually Jesus. Now I want you to notice what Peter does next. There isn't a lot of agreement from Bible commentators as to why Peter did what he did next. I have a theory. It's just my theory. You can throw it away if you want. 
Most Bible commentators have come to the conclusion that when Peter jumped out of the boat and into the water, it was because he was so anxious to go see Jesus. But there's some uncertainty for me around that conclusion. For one, Peter gets dressed to jump in the water. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I jump in a lake, I strip down, not dress up. So what's going on? That to me indicates there's something going on here that Peter is trying to work out in his own life. And I'm going to suggest to you that what Peter is doing in that moment is expressing the shame that he's feeling and the desire to remain hidden from Jesus. He covers up his nakedness. He jumps in the water. Everybody else is still in the boat pulling in the fish. And then they slowly make their way to shore. And it says that the disciples followed Peter, but it doesn't say that Peter got there first. And you'll notice that when they finally get to shore, everybody realizes that it's Jesus. And he says, come, bring me some of your fish and we'll have a fish fry. And so Peter's the one who gets back in the boat and brings the fish. Now, I want you to think for a moment about that little campfire with this band of ragtag disciples who are now sitting around the campfire with Jesus eating breakfast. If you're Peter in this moment, what are you feeling? If I'm Peter, and this is just me, but if I'm Peter in that moment... I've probably got a stick in my hand and I'm poking with the fire, playing at the fire, or I'm drawing in the dirt and I'm trying real hard to be invisible in front of Jesus because I, my heart tells me about my failure. But Jesus isn't content with that. And you'll notice that the conversation picking up in verse 15 is very intentional on the part of Jesus. Peter recognizes Jesus, and the reality check for all of us as we think about Peter, the broken one, is I've got stuff, you've got stuff, we've all got stuff, and the best thing we can do for each other is help each other get our stuff to Jesus. You've heard me say that before. And we're going to see how that plays out here in the life of Peter with Jesus. And as we do, I want you to try and begin to think with me about the kinds of brokenness that we experience in our lives. And I'm going to suggest that there's three kinds of brokenness that we experience. The first is the brokenness I was born with. That brokenness comes from living in a fallen world that is broken because of sin. So because we, we are born into a broken world, born broken as it were because of the fallen nature of, of humanity in sin and rebellion against God, the brokenness I was born with comes with some things that are realities for us. So the world that we're born into is a world that's born, that we're born into with disease, with sickness, with poverty, with racism all of which we experience either personally or in a systemic level, all of which are symptomatic of a world that is broken because of sin. We live in a world with natural disasters. I've been watching over the weekend all that's going on in the East Coast because of my roots back there. 
and watching whole houses disappear back into the ocean. Natural disasters are a part of living in a fallen, fallen, broken world. And as a result of living in a broken world, being born into a broken world, we get broken. The image of God is broken within us so that it distorts how we think about ourselves. It distorts how we think about God. It thinks about, it distorts how we think about others in our world. That's part of the brokenness we're born with. But there's another kind of brokenness, and that's the brokenness I've experienced. And that kind of brokenness happens as a result of things that happen in our lives where we get hurt, where we get wounded. Dare I even say it, that we get broken. People do things, they say things. They leave wounds and scars on us that we carry through the rest of our lives. Let me just give you one example. I don't think I've told you this story before, but um, one of the lies I lived with for most of my life was that I was a lazy, no good for nothing, and that I spent most of my life trying to prove otherwise. Now, here's why I believe that. Because those are the words I heard from my mother. That's the brokenness I experienced. Now, I could regale you with story after story of my brokenness, but you're not here to hear that, nor are you that interested in it. But it does illustrate the point that stuff happens in our lives that leaves us broken and wounded and in need of repair. And the brokenness that we experience has an impact that lasts I want to suggest to you that there are five kinds of trauma that we experience in our lives. The first kind of trauma is the trauma that comes from wounds of withholding. So if you think about the things you should have received as a child that would meet your core uh, value, not your core values, the, 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 uh, your core identity, things like love, security, protection, wounds in this particular category, are about the things that I did not receive that I should have received to be a whole person. So that's the first kind of trauma. They're called wounds of neglect, where our core longings are not met. The second kind of trauma is wounds of aggression. That's where I got what I didn't need. That's verbal abuse, that's physical abuse, that's violence perpetrated against you. Those are the wounds that come from wounds of aggression. The third kind of wound or that comes from trauma are wounds from an event. So uh, I think I mentioned one of the times I was here in the past that we had a car accident in 2018 as we're driving to Ohio on the I-90 just east of Buffalo. We got up close to the toll booths, those of you who may be familiar with the highway, and as we stopped in our lane, a transport truck came behind us and nailed us. Um, he, he hit us in the back right quarter, pinballed us left. We hit the traffic on that side, bounced back into another transport on the right side. And by the time we were finally coming to a stop, another car came up on the inside and hit us there. We got clobbered four times. Uh, we shouldn't have lived. Uh, The exact same accident happened a week later in the same place, and nobody survived that accident. My wife and I walked away. I can still hear the sound of that truck. 
I can still see it in the rearview mirror as he's bearing down on us. So the wounds that come from trauma are things like that, and they're all stored in our memory, and they come with sensations of taste, uh, smell, sight, hearing. All of our five senses are embodied in those memories. So that's the third kind of trauma, or, and the fourth kind of trauma is not unrelated. It's the wounds of betrayal. That's where someone you trusted, someone in a position of trust, violated that trust and hurt you. And every church that I've been in recently, they have what's called plan to protect because we want our children and we want people to be safe because people who are in trust in the past have violated that trust and wounded people. And so wounds of betrayal deal with those kinds of areas in our lives where someone in trust broke the trust, and as a result, we got hurt. And then the final kind of trauma that we experience are wounds of sustained duress. So the way I think about this is Chinese water torture. You know what that is? That's where you get one drop of water that drops on your head over a long period of time. It's called sustained duress. Now, I have faulty roofing material, and I can tell you that I feel and I hear every raindrop. But imagine living with the constant dripping Days, weeks, months on end. And what that might do to your soul. What that might do to your life. These are the wounds that come from living in a constantly unstable environment. So if you've lived with an alcoholic, if you've lived with a person of addiction, if you've lived with a person who constantly devalues you, that is the constant dripping that wears you down. Well, as I look at Peter, there's a couple of wounds, I think, that show up here. One is the betrayal wound for which he's guilty. He was the one who betrayed the trust, and he has to own that and deal with it. But I think you also have the event trauma of watching Jesus crucified and all the things that went around it. So in my mind, it's very clear that Peter is broken. Now, what happens in this passage with Jesus, as he walks Peter towards renewal, but it also involves in a very gentle way, an act of repentance and confession. You understand that Peter denied Jesus three times, and that when Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? That the number had to ring a rather resounding gong in Peter's head and in his heart. And the understatement of the scripture, I think, is when it says that Peter was hurt. That tells us that this registered with him. And so, let me give you a a different sort of framework for the word repentance. We all know that it means to to make a turnaround or to make a a, a shift of direction. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me put repentance to you in this framework. What if repentance is actually when my heart breaks open? 
when the fortress walls I've built around my heart to protect me finally get shattered, and I stand bare and naked before Jesus and can no longer hide from either my past or my wounds, I think that's Peter in this moment, a heart being broken open. And as we think about this, you're going to see on the screen what I call grace anatomy. It works down the protocol from one side, life situation, to the place of wounding in our lives, and then it works back up the other side towards our life situation, which becomes an empowered life because of having met Jesus in the place of wounding. If you look at this, the life situation, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, the life situation is where you live right now. Now, if all your coping mechanisms in life are working well, you never move past life situation. But when your, li- when your life situation, when your coping mechanisms stop working for you and you find you set yourself moving into distress, that's when you begin to move into dysfunctional behaviors. And the simple way to understand d- dysfunctional behaviors are they're the things we do to numb the noise and the pain of our wounds. And with dysfunctional behaviors, they come because we've got this emotional upheaval that's happening within us as a result of our pain. And that emotional upheaval comes with it lies that we've believed about ourselves, about God, and our world as a result of the wound that's at the bottom of this. And the key to our lives and being made whole people is not running away from our wounds, not hiding from them, not burying them, not numbing them, but meeting Jesus in them. And that's the thing that none of us want to do. When we've got stuff in our lives that hurts, the last instinct we have is to go visit those places of pain. Because our instinct is, I don't want to feel that pain, therefore I'm going to avoid the things that make me think about it. For years I lived with noise because I couldn't stand the voice I heard inside of me in silence calling out to me from my pain. The things that I didn't want to deal with. Now here's the good news, as you go back up that protocol you begin to see that when you meet Jesus in the place of wounding, you begin to find healing and wholeness. With healing and wholeness then comes truth about who you are and who, about who God is in the world that you live in, which comes to comfort and peace. And you see the parallel across the lines, which leads to empowered living, and your life situation now changes. Now, all that is simply to try and understand our broken world and that as broken people, in order to get beyond the brokenness we were born with, we need the grace of surrender. That's where we put our lives in the hands of Jesus. And to get beyond the brokenness I've experienced, it takes the grace of encounter, meeting Jesus in those places of pain in our lives. Hear this. God's desire for you and for me is not for us to live in the pain or in the numbing of the pain. His desire is to meet us in those places and to bring about healing and restoration in our lives. God's desire is not for us to stay where we are. We sang about that already this morning, but to bring transformation that brings us to a new place. I believe that everybody who walks in the doors of a church should be welcome, but they should also understand they're coming into a dangerous place. 
And it's dangerous for this reason. Because we believe that if you come in and you stay, you will not remain the same. The grace of Jesus Christ will touch your life. Your life will never be the same. And as we think about all of this, this is the movement that brings us towards wholeness. Now, let me show you one more slide. I'm going to spend even less time on this. This is called the feeling wheel. I don't know if we have this. Okay, now, in in the culture I grew up in, there were four emotions that we were allowed to have. Mad, sad, happy, and hungry. Uh, some of you recognize hungry isn't really emotion, but if you've been around a household when hu- husbands are hungry, you know it's an emotion. So I put this up simply to illustrate there are a lot more than four emotions that God has given to us. And we have been taught in the church on many occasions that our emotions are not to be, a t- be a trusted, but I want you to hear that God gave us a brain the left, left brain handles all the intellectual calculations that we make to make sense of our world. The right half of, of our brain contains emotions that are laden with our senses. And when we feel something, we might do well to ask ourselves, why am I feeling that right now? Now, I, I put that up there simply so that you can begin to see that. You can Google the feeling wheel, and I would suggest a good exercise might be to take that feeling wheel with you for 24 hours and just notice over the course of 24 hours the different emotions you've felt. And for those of us who can't figure out past four emotions, that wheel will help you figure out there's a lot more. There's about 75 or 80 emotions on there. I've seen one wheel that has 150, and that really gets overwhelming for me, coming from my four-feeling background. But take the wheel and ask yourself over the course of 24 hours, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Now, what's the point of all of this? Well, the point is that Jesus is walking Peter through the pain of his brokenness to the place where he can be renewed, and Peter can't be renewed unless he owns where he's been. And so Jesus asks him three questions. Three questions. Do you love me? The first two times, it's the word agape, that's the root of the word love here. You all recognize that as the, the particularly Christian form of love. It's God's love for us. It's love with purpose and affection. But the third time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? It's a different word. And it's the kind of love that comes between friends. So here's how I think Jesus is playing this out with Peter. First two times he says, do you love me? in that Christian brotherly sense. The third time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's saying, hey, Peter, are we still friends? I don't think there's any question about Peter's affection for Jesus, but there is a question in Peter's mind about the affection of Jesus for him because of his failure, and that happens to us. When we mess up, one of the things that we begin to experience in our souls is the doubt about whether God could love us when we fail the way we do, when we sin the way we do, when we make the mistakes we do, when we say the things we do to others that are hurtful. So Jesus asked Peter, are we still friends? Of course, 
Peter responds with the affirmative each time, but um, the first two times Peter says, you know that I do, and they that word that's used for you know that I do there has to do with intellectual assent of a fact. So Peter's saying, you know the facts. You know I love you. But the third time, the word that he uses has to do with experience. And what Peter's saying to Jesus when Jesus says, are we still friends? Peter says, you know, Lord, that we're still friends because we have tracked together. I still love you. And in this process, we see Peter being renewed. Could Peter ever become the rock that Jesus said he would be if Jesus did, walk, did not walk him through these moments? My conclusion is no. At best, he would have been sandstone. Crumbles with the least bit of pressure. But what we see is a very different Peter going forward. A Peter who begins to assume strength once again. Does Peter become perfect as a result of this encounter with Jesus? No. We still know that Peter's got his flaws because just a, a little while later, he has this, this encounter with the dream. Three times a sheet comes down. Do you hear the number three? Another lesson in threes for Peter. And he has to deal with the racism that's in his heart where God says, Kill and eat in reference to all the animals that are on the sheet, which include both clean and unclean animals for a Jewish person. And Peter's response is always, Lord, you know I'm kosher. I can't eat some of those. And you remember God's response? Don't call unclean what I say is. And the next thing you know, he gets knock, knock, knock on the door. And he gets invited to go and do some ministry with Gentiles. Where, When he begins to preach, he doesn't even finish the sermon because the Holy Spirit falls on the meeting. I'm longing for that day when I don't have to finish the sermon because the Holy Spirit falls on the congregation. But that's what happened with Peter. And what we see is a very different Peter. Now, I want to suggest to you that there's some obstacles to our healing. And the first is Silence. I want you to think about the story of Tamar in the Old Testament. Remember, Tamar got raped by her brother. David did nothing, said nothing, did not defend his daughter, did not stand up to protect her, did not seek justice. But Absalom, her brother, did. But Absalom, in defending Tamar, said this to her. He said, let's talk of this no more. In other words, the cone of silence fell on the event. The family would not talk about this anymore. There would be no discussion of it. And what the scripture tells us is that Tamar lived the rest of her life a barren woman. And I want to suggest to you that when we have wounds that are in our hearts and in our lives, and we put the cone of silence on them, it will make for a barren life. And so silence is one of the things that becomes an obstacle to healing. But so does stubbornness, the unwillingness to admit that there's something wrong in my life, the unwillingness to admit that there's something I need to deal with, that I've done something wrong. We get stubborn and we say, it's not my fault, it's their fault. 
And if the first words that come out of your mouth every time you, you feel a, a pain of guilt in your conscience is, well, it's their fault. You made me feel this way. Now, let me just unpack that briefly for you. None of us have the power to make anybody feel anyway. Those are choices we make as to how we respond in the moment to those situations. And so in stubbornness, we sometimes just plain won't admit that there's something wrong in us. There's something we need to deal with. Some of you, when you hear me say, I've got stuff, you've got stuff, we've all got stuff, say, I haven't got any stuff. But the truth of the matter is, if you've said that to yourself, ask yourself if it's actually true. Because we do have stuff. And when we get stubborn, it's about somebody else, not us. And the other obstacle to healing is our shrinking back. It's our unwillingness to face the hurt and admit the weakness and the pain where we meet Jesus and begin to move towards wholeness. We want to bury it. We want to numb it. We want to kill it. (coughs) We cover it with dysfunctional behaviors that help us cope. But the reality is we remain hurt, and that's Peter. It says, Peter was hurt. But though it says Peter was hurt, we also see Jesus was helping. Jesus was healing. He was meeting Peter in that place of pain and bringing him forward so that he could face his hurt, face his pain, find healing. And that's the season of healing that Peter begins to experience at the hands of Jesus. You've heard me say before from Larry Crabb, there are four statements of authentic Christian community. I see you, I accept you, I believe in you, I pour into you. Look at those four statements in the context of Peter's life here at the campfire. Is he seen by Jesus? Absolutely. Is he accepted by Jesus? Absolutely. Notice that there isn't a hint of condemnation in this passage. I see you, I accept you. Is there evidence that Jesus still believed in Peter? Absolutely. And does Jesus pour into Peter? Absolutely. He's helping him take the next step to being the rock that would be there for the church and for his brothers. And so we've looked at three kinds of brokenness. Well, actually, we've looked at two. The first two are the brokenness I was born with, the brokenness I experienced. And now comes the third kind of brokenness, and it's the brokenness that I now offer. It's the brokenness I offer. We talked about this last week, I think, where the stuff that I go through can become a bridge to somebody else. And I think what we see with Peter is now the brokenness that is being dealt with becomes a place of strength for him to minister from. A bridge to someone else. It's a part of being in the teaching hospital. Remember last week I mentioned that my image for the church is a teaching hospital. We, we all get born there. We all die there. In between, 
We need it for all kinds of reasons. But at some point or another, when we're in the hospital and we're, we're sick and we get well, we begin to get up and get trained to be a part of the healing team. And that's what's happening with Peter. Our brokenness can be a bridge to someone else if we're willing to offer it, and that's the brokenness we offer. The first two need the grace of surrender and the grace of encounter, but this kind of brokenness needs the grace of empowerment that comes only from Jesus, who says to Peter, follow me, feed my sheep. That's empowerment. He's turning Peter loose to do the ministry that he was called to do. And so we see not Peter the broken going forward. We see Peter the rock. Seen, accepted, believed in, poured into. He is received by Jesus. He is intentionally renewed. He's purposefully restored. He's lovingly recommissioned, all of which are public acts. Now, for a moment, be a, stand, a bystander at the campfire. All the disciples are gathered around. Do you think they have any interest in watching how this plays out between Jesus and Peter? Do you think they have any interest in seeing whether Jesus would bring condemnation to Jesus or to Peter, or whether he would bring forgiveness? Do you think they had any interest in watching the dynamics of this relationship? I think absolutely. They were totally invested because they know that their moment of failure may come and how they saw Jesus treat Peter gives them permission then to own their stuff going down the road because it was greeted with grace, with tenderness, with compassion. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're sitting at home, and you're in the tomb of your woundedness, your brokenness, your sin, your failure. I want you to hear that God's desire for you is not to live in the tomb. His desire is no more for you to stay entombed in your failure and your sin than it was for Lazarus to stay in the tomb after Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. He wants us to come out of that tomb. He wants to bring that season of healing into our lives that makes us whole and recommissions us to the work he's called us to do, to be the people he's called us to be. Hear this, Jesus rolled away the stone so that you and I could be made whole and so that we could serve him from a place of functionality and wholeness. He wants to do a renovation on our lives from the inside out that when we give him permission to do it, it will feel like we have been born again. It will feel like we have experienced a resurrection in our lives. And if you're here today and you're a wounded person, I want you to hear that you can experience resurrection in your life because of the power of Jesus to meet you in places of pain and transform them. He simply says, follow me. 
as he did to Peter. From this point on, we see a very different Peter. And here's one of the things that strikes me in all of this. God never gives up on his kids. He never quits on his kids. No matter our failures, no matter how we feel we've messed up, he never quits on you and me. He will come to you time and time again and roll away the stone and say, come on out. And he'll invite the community to help take the grave clothes off because it takes a community to take the grave clothes off somebody who's been in the tomb and teach them how to live again. And that's the point of the teaching hospital is to teach people how to live again as people who are created in the image of God and born again by his spirit. Out of the dark night comes a season of healing. And that season of healing leads to a season of delight. Remember where we started? It's the image of Adam first formed out of the dust. And God breathes life into his nostrils and he opens his eyes. And what's the first image he sees but the face of God's delight looking at him. And that is the same face of delight that you will see when you allow yourself to meet Jesus in places of pain and allow him to bring healing to your life and experience resurrection and transformation. That's the God we serve. That's why we're here. That's why we sing songs of worship. Because our God is alive today. Our Savior can do what nobody else can do, what no doctor can do, what no psychologist can do. He can do alone and make us brand new people. We sang it already. The only question is the question that he really asks Peter at the end, follow me. Are we willing to follow Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord, your grace is too good to believe that you don't treat us the way our sins deserve is too good to believe. That you can meet us in places where we've been wounded in our past and change those memories altogether by your healing touch is too good to believe, but it's all true. When Isaiah said, it's by your stripes that we are healed, It's a reminder to us of the power that was unleashed in the resurrection. That we don't have to live in the tombs of sin in a broken world and broken lives. And I pray that for everyone here and everybody listening online, that they'll hear your invitation to come out of the tomb. To come alive afresh today. And we just thank you today, Lord, that we have this invitation to new life and fresh starts. You are a good God, a gracious God. 
and a healing God. And we simply fall before you today in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.